What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain All right, so here we are with the Warrior Poet Project podcast, and uh, a real true honor today to be sitting next to another Warrior Poet that I found along the way. Uh, Dr. Dan, as he is affectionately called, is here with me and uh, has a really unique story. Um, is an MD, but uh, has traveled the world in ways that, that most MDs haven't, I would certainly say. And, uh, uh, you know, I think a good way to start would be to just, uh, you know, have you introduce your story, how you, uh, where you started and where you traveled and, and how you came to be where you're at now. Cool. Yeah, Aubrey, also a deep honor and pleasure to be with you here today and uh, to have you come down to our place here. We're we're Creekside right now at uh, Grace Grove, which is our center right outside of Sedona. And um, just finishing up with a a retreat where a half a dozen or so people have come for a really uh, beautiful, intimate and deep uh, rejuvenative restorative process. And uh, the culmination of my work in the jungles and my work in the lab and my work in the classroom and in the clinic and in a variety of different aspects is what has kind of led our team uh, to put forth this uh, full, what we call a full body rejuvenation. And it's really accessing what's happening on the body, mind, spirit, heart, and soul. You know, all levels of um, what? Wait a minute! You're a doctor, and you just said the word soul and body, mind, spirit. What are you talking about here, Dan? All There's only together. the body. There's only the body. What did your medical books teach you? Right. Yeah, the medical books. This is just a little glimpse into what the medical books taught me. So, in four years of medical school, I got eight years of nutrition. Right. So, just the idea of using food as medicine is uh-huh. foreign. Yeah. <laughs> Much less looking at the energy body. Eight years, or the you said soul eight body. years of nutrition. Four years of medical school, you got eight. Eight hours. Eight hours. Of nutrition. Eight hours eight of nutrition. Hours in the classroom only. <laughs> through four whole years. <laughs> four years of med school. Know, wasn't it? Uh, was it Hippocrates who said that the stomach is the cauldron of health? What happened? Where do we? Where do we <laughs> right. lose that? Knowledge? And use food as thy medicine. Yeah, yeah. And first, do no harm. <laughs> 
and all those things. What, that, you what, know, they, they were just like, nah, we yeah, don't need that. You know, we, tr- we 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 like to think, and most of and most docs out there are well-meaning docs. Um, it's just out of ignorance we that we practice oftentimes really silly styles of medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we as allopaths are really good on the battlefield. And that's where I thought I was originally going to go into medicine. Um, You know, I went to college to play soccer and and I didn't really look much after that. And it was halfway through college that my advisor asked me what I wanted to do. And I was like, you know, I really don't know. I'm just here to play ball and have a good time. And he goes, well, maybe you want to think about it. So I found my way into... um, So where did you go to college, first of all? In uh, Austin. Austin? Yeah, at uh, St. Edwards. Right on. So you were playing... uh, Playing soccer on scholarship, St. Ed's. Yeah. What was what was your day to day life? Because this will be a good contrast for what what's going on. You as a college guy. What was oh, that? What man. was that Dan that like was, before was, you were Doctor Dan? That was funny. Way too little sleep for one. <laughs> I, well, I mean that could be like residency too. Yeah. Way too little sleep. Way too much drinking. That could be like residency <laughs> too. Okay. So what are the differences? Um, well, we we uh, would wake up, you know, six in the morning, practice till nine. Yeah. And then I'd go to class, class all day. Then I'd go to work. I had this sweet little gig in the gym where I was making money at the same time working out then go Sounds back like to a, class a real college athlete program there. you know it's as much like just 5,000 calories of food a day uh-huh. just shoveling in huge amounts of food burning off huge amounts of energy so just like putting it back you know some of the some of the tour de france guys they they go about nine to ten thousand calories a day so the body can wow. work that efficiently if necessary uh, it's just not the best longevity tool, <laughs> right. you know. When we're looking at longevity and, and how people live to ripe old ages of centenarians and and well beyond a hundred, those classically across the board, the majority of their life they've been consuming on average about fifteen hundred calories or so mm-hmm. a day, or or a, even a little bit less than that. So. Um, suffice to say, I'm not eating 5,000 calories anymore. <laughs> well, it's but. interesting to, you know, right now there's kind of some awareness coming in. Uh, there's a fighter by the name of John Fitch, an MMA fighter, who's just known for the pretty much the best endurance in MMA, right up there mm. with the very best. And his, you know, his nutrition belief system and diet is a low-calorie diet, which most of these fighters are just exactly like you said, putting in as much as they can possibly put in, and football players too, and, you know, I, I was just in the Green Bay Packers kind of uh, cafeteria area and, and watching these guys <laughs> go at it, and, you know, they put up some simple signs about, you know, different nutritional tips. These guys are really just powerhousing food, right. you know, to the massive degree, but to see someone like John Fitch, top-level athlete, championship caliber... And he's not ingesting that many calories. And he said it makes him clear, helps his stamina. So, yeah, uh, and, and so in that context, he's both an endurance athlete and he's also a high impact athlete. Yeah. So he's really uh, covering the gamut when you when you think about you know how we can stretch our physical capabilities to their limits and be really at the top of our game and, and a high level athlete. You can. Uh, depending on you know one's belief systems, what our education tells us, um, be able to do things like MMA and mixed martial arts in a relatively mindful way. Yeah. Because generally, eating less is going to help the body. Well, comparatively speaking, to somebody who is who is to eat a whole lot more, com- comparatively speaking, helps the body recuperate quicker, mm-hmm. faster, more efficiently. Helps your body process what they're taking in more efficiently, and in something like MMA, you really 
want to have your utmost wits about you. Yeah, totally. Super supreme reflex speeds. Yep. So kudos to him because I imagine he's not necessarily a pariah, you know, but he's certainly on the fringe as yeah, far yeah. as that sport For goes. Sure. For sure. I so, think it, yeah, it's been, uh, you got to make sure that what you're eating is good though, too. I mean, it's right. not like just saying, oh, I'll get the six piece chicken nugget rather than the nine piece. You right. know, that's still not going to get the job done. Totally because you got less calories, so they better do, you know, do the work yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, and there are different dietary styles and dietary approaches. And, you know, oftentimes people want to try and find a, a one size fits all model because that's kind of how our culture likes it. You know, mm-hmm. it's easy, it's simple, it's fast. Just give it to me straight. But everybody's physiology is different. Some people burn through glucose on a cellular level really fast, and some people burn through it slower. So the, the, the technical term for that is fast oxidizer or, or slow oxidizer, and that's not necessarily metabolic rate. Okay, so that's different than what a bodybuilder would say, oh, he's metabolic, oh, he's anabolic. Right. Yeah. So that's on a cellular level, how quickly the, the cell uses its sugar. Mm-hmm. And some people, like um, you know, one of my previous partners, she would be great having a bagel out the door in the morning till three in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. That's all she needed. And for me, if I have a bagel, I'm hungry in like an hour. Yeah. Because I'm a fast oxidizer and I just burn through that sugar on a cellular right. level really fast. Right. So my diet's gonna have to have, if I'm gonna be satisfied, it's gonna have to have a fair bit of protein. Yeah. And then you get into the whole, like, well, is it meat protein? Is it soy-based protein? Is it plant-based protein? Where does it come from? How is it produced? How is it manufactured? How does your body respond to it? How much protein? And that's where, you know, in people's individual physiology really dictates the game. And some of your best high-level athletes are those that can listen to their body mm-hmm. the best and get direct feedback and know how it's specifically uh, efficiently affects their workouts, their routines, their recuperative times. And we can only know that by putting ourselves in the laboratory. Yep. And go through a variety of, and I've, I've and done And when Dan that. says laboratory, he means the metaphoric laboratory. I mean, treat yourself as a test subject, not actually go, go into the laboratory right. just to clear that out. But, but treat yourself like an experiment where you're, you know, receiving feedback from what you put in your body and, and totally. what you don't. Yeah. And the only way to know that is to try different things on, see how it fits, modify it over time, use what works. I've done all the diets, you know, in, in college when, you know, I was, yeah, eating. And it was, it was kind of like we'd have these eating contests. And was <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Little, yeah, right? So, <laughs> yeah. and like the big kind of football player guys would sit down with like the soccer team and see who could eat the most. And consistently it was the soccer team because we were just burning so sure. much. And, and how many so, miles did you just, you know, not to go on a tangent, but how many miles does a soccer player run? I've heard figures like that in an average game. An Something av- like ridiculous. Yeah, it's about, it, it depends on your position. Right. Um, on average, I would say it's between 8 and 12. And that's not like lackadaisical. That's moving, cutting, jostling, pushing. Yeah. So, constant, yeah, that's burning sprints. incredible amount of calories. Yeah. And, you know, and, and um, to this extent, that you know we we were in this model like any like any uh, military combat style team would be there's a hierarchy you know you have, you have the coaches you're like general right and the captains are like your captains and then you've got like the the freshmen who are like your privates yeah and 
um, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So I was raised in this, and I grew up playing soccer in different sports, and I was kind of raised in this mentality to be like this really strong, yang, really masculine driven warrior with uh, like a, a, a don't take crap off of anybody kind <laughs> right. of mentality right. and then over time I've just recognized that through a few different experiences I've completely changed my trajectory because you can practice sports the way the, the same way you could practice medicine mm-hmm. you could take a very yang oriented approach to medicine you like a like a get in there, fix it, and get out, which is what a lot of internal medicine docs do or family practice docs do when they only have, because of insurance coding, 10 minutes with each client. Yeah. You're not going to talk a whole lot about nutrition if you only have 10 minutes and you're wondering how do you manage people on four or five different medications. Yeah. That's where you, you recognize the whole system has to get revamped. And I went into like the idea of going into medicine from college um, as a, to be a surgeon, either, either to be a surgeon or an ER doc. It was the same kind of like in and out, mm-hmm. fix it. Yep. I can I can tell if I've done a good job right then. Yeah, there's a bullet and it's causing and it's damage. Coming this out. is bleeding. The bullet's coming out. The bleeding yeah. is stopping. And that's where we really shine. And and then um, two weeks before medical school, I broke my neck. I dove off a pier and uh, hit a sandbar and landed right on the top of my head and had a compression fracture C5. Wow. And it was the it was the single biggest reorienting event in my whole life. Uh-huh. And after that, um, you know, I didn't real I actually didn't know it was broken because I could still move my hands and legs. It hurt like oh, hurt like just crazy. <laughs> and but I could move everything and so at that time I didn't really know a whole lot about trauma medicine. So I figured, well, if I can move everything, it must be okay. So I climbed back on the back up on the pier, walked back home. It was about a half a mile. The whole time I'm thinking, wow, geez, my neck really hurts. And then um, sure enough, the people that I was staying with, they had more sense than I did at the time. And they said, don't move. And they called the EMS. And the whole, and, and long story short is, yeah, did the x-rays broken. Had the opportunity to get surgery or wear one of those big halos. You know, those halos, like those big cages right, that you right. see people, like in Fight Club, that guy behind the bar. <laughs> uh-huh. He's got that thing screwed into his skull. And, I, and at that time, I was used to having injuries and wearing different braces. And I thought, well, no knife is a good knife. And I'd rather not anybody get close to my spinal cord with a knife. So I said, I'll take Sensible. the halo. Yeah. So I wore, I wore this big cage screwed into my skull. Started Whoa. med school like that for Whoa. two and a half months. And uh, <laughs> needless to say, definitely did not uh, enter uh, med school subtly, right? Everybody's <laughs> yeah. like, what the heck happened oh, to you? look at Cage Boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number of different, uh, yeah, funny kind of. Uh, experiences with old college buddies. Yeah. You know, when we were, I was still in kind of a party mentality at that point. So we'd still go to Sixth Street, but it was the <laughs> coolest thing to walk into a bar, crowded bar, shoulder to shoulder, and Cage Boy walks in, and everybody's <laughs> like, holy shit. You know, the record stops, and there's a, a, a sea of people part like the Red Sea all the way up to the bar, and you know, hey, what can I get you? Jeez, look at that. That's not average. <laughs> so, but, and that that was a whole, that was a complete different reorientation. I realized I was vulnerable. I realized I, I was invincible. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it really took me down from that pedestal. And thankfully so. And and after that, things started you know, opening up in a way that I started asking more questions about life and deeper meaning and 
um, eventually that led me into psychiatry. And uh, I still had a, a, an affinity for working with kids, so eventually I went to child psychiatry. I did a fellowship in forensic psychiatry and child psychiatry, both. But then, you know, and, and even then I was doing my residency in Denver. So I was learning how to rock climb and snowboard and climbing the 14ers, and I was still so kind of outwardly oriented. I wasn't really interested that much in my training. Mm -hmm. I, I was good at it because, you know, it just requires some memorization and, and not asking a whole lot of questions. Right. You know, because it's what a is, standard so of that? care. It's like what? a cookie cutter mentality. Yeah. They want to train ducks just like they train everybody else in our educational system to make widgets yeah. and to think as little as possible. So they have these standards of care where you have these protocols to follow. And, and I understand it from the standpoint that it it can cut down the the maverick style approach to pharmacology where you have people prescribing crazy amounts of medications mm -hmm. with potential side effects and you don't want to have that happen. So you have to reel people in, um, you know, by making what would seem like at times obviously uh, right rules, like don't have sex with your patients, but you saw people doing that, right. you know? So right. you, you have these standards of care, and when you're a doc and you practice outside of the standard of care, you can come under the, the crosshairs. Yeah. And you start to kind of raise eyebrows. If you do that while you're in your training, you get reprimanded or you get booted. Right. And so I was in my training, but I wasn't really asking the question, like, what do you, what does it really mean to, to get to the deeper la layers and levels of imbalances and cures? So after I, start, after I finished my training and got out of uh, that, that formal institutional setting and started out on my own, I realized I didn't want to practice the standard of care. And, and thankfully, I had that wake-up call, kind of like when I did with I, when I broke my neck. Right before med school, I had a big change. Right. And, and right before I started my first practice, I had a big change. And that happened when I went to Thailand and did, I did my first cleanse. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I didn't know why I was doing this cleanse. And uh, my wife at the time, I was married then, and um, she and I went to Thailand for six weeks and she decided to do like, you know, two weeks of hanging out on the beach and sipping Mai Tais and going to the discotheque and hanging out like you would normally do. Sure, sure. And for some reason, I was inspired to do a two-week colon cleanse. <laughs> you know, yeah, everybody sip. gets their kicks in a I different know. way in Thailand. Like, and know? she's asking me, what are you doing? Whatever you like. We're here to like, you know, celebrate. And I said, I don't know. I just, I have to do this for some reason. I'm sure I have to do this. I just don't know why. Yeah. And so that, that whole two weeks, while I'm just doing enemas and flushing crazy crap out, um, I read their whole library on natural healing. And it was, and it really opened my eyes. Like, oh my gosh, there's this whole form of, and this whole approach to medicine, this whole approach to healing that I haven't even learned. Mm -hmm. I haven't even scratched the surface. Like, what, it, what does it really mean to bring the body back into balance so that the mind can clear, the heart can open even further, the spirit and the, and the spiritual self can expand. Yeah. And so I got really turned on and then went and started my practice in holistic psychiatry to help people come off of medications. And then um, transition onto supplements and different nutraceuticals and cleansing programs. But I'd never learned any of that. I was just kind of trying to teach myself. Yeah. So I decided after a few years of doing that and seeing some success, I really wanted to learn from like one of the experts. So I left my practice um, 
took an 80% pay cut, <laughs> got rid of all my stuff. My wife at that time and I separated. So I was like, okay, new, big that, new change. That had to put a lot of strain. If you're doing a two-week cleanse and your girlfriend wife at the time is doing the Mai Tai beach party circuit, that has to create a certain amount of conflict. Yeah. And that's one issue with... You know, if you're in a relationship and listening and, you know, it's just you on this, on this path and you're going to take a big step, it's, uh, it's challenging. It's challenging to bring that back home, that different awareness, the different lessons you learn. Um, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate that, uh, you know, I'm, I brought who I'm in a relationship now with me here to Grace Grove so we get to experience it together. But if you are in a relationship, I, I recommend, you know, trying to get your significant other on the same path. It's yeah. just going to be uh, beneficial all around. You've experienced it when it's happened the other way. Yeah, absolutely. You've made, you've made transitions in yourself, in your life, in your own consciousness that weren't reflected in the relationship. No doubt. And then at that point, you have the choice to either succumb and release your soul's calling for the sake of the relationship, or you have the opportunity to stay on your path very clear and as strong as you can be, yeah. speaking your truth, and perhaps your partner meets you on that path, and perhaps not. Yeah. You know, you can only be as committed to yourself. And and as um, uh, this beautiful poem called uh, "The Journey" by Mary Oliver, the last line in that poem is this brilliant, it's a really gorgeous, epic description of, as she says, saving the only life that we can save. Um, yeah. Right. And, yeah, and really. Beautiful in a good way, listening, mm -hmm. right? In, in which is what um, was speaking of commonalities and common themes, and I know part of your path too, which is what some of the medicine in the jungle experiences really no help doubt. us do, which no is doubt. listen deeply. I remember I, one of the most profound instances of that, I went to Peru from the first time to drink and sit with, uh, with the maestro down there in the jungle. And I had just life-altering openings, wild experiences, mm. and uh, spent three days of that. Obviously, you're following the dieta, you're getting the cleanse of the medicine, you're opening your mind and heart. And I came back, and my girlfriend, um, fiance at the time, was spent that week at Electric Forest Festival, which is a big <laughs> rave in Michigan, where there's just you know copious amounts of debauchery. Uh, right going on there. Right. So she was coming off directly. We arrived at the same time back home and just, we looked at each other and it was just like, whoa, we have really been doing about the extreme opposite. And, you know, we bridged it. We bridged it for a while and, and made it work because she had a, an interest in kind of keeping that up. But um, certainly, certainly a challenge too. It's okay. So you're, uh, so you, Let's pick back up in your story. So you're finishing, uh, you're, you're yeah, taking a holistic just, uh, mindset, going to study a little bit more with the Yeah, with the I, wanted to, I wanted to find somebody who I could really uh, learn from, who had been down the block, you know, for a while, and knew about rejuvenative medicine, and knew how to bring different modalities together, and, and really look at it from a holistic model. And, um, you know, synchronistically... Uh, I knew, I, I think it was, I think it was the night that my wife and I at the time left our mediator's office, you know, cause uh -huh. we, we settled, we wanted to just settle across the table, you know, eye to eye and heart to heart. And the night that we left and we kind of solidified everything, I was recognizing it was a big change opportunity for me cause I was in Portland. I, I missed the sun. I'd been in Portland for five years and I was thinking, oh gosh, I need, 
I need some more sunshine. <laughs> and so obviously I'm in a big change. I got on the website of this center that I had been reading about, uh, this guy Gabriel Cousins at the Tree of Life. And um, I'm reading his books on spiritual nutrition and food as medicine and um, fasting and cleansing and detoxification, rejuvenation, all this stuff. And I get on their website and the first um, ad I see for an opening, I thought I was going to go like maybe just work in the garden. I was yeah. like, maybe I'm just going to take a break from psychiatry, work in the garden, maybe work <laughs> in the kitchen, just take a different completely approach. Yeah. And first ad I see is holistic psychiatrist opening. Okay. So I was like, all right. And the next day, their whole website was different. So it was like that right as the subway doors are closing, I jump on. Went down there, met with him. It was a great fit. Ended up working there as the medical director for two years, learning from Gabriel about like the philosophy of fasting and cleansing and detoxing. And went through a raw vegan diet. Went pretty much raw vegan overnight, which was super helpful for my spirit, super helpful for my mind, and not so helpful for my body. Mm-hmm. You know, because it has a taxing effect, especially if you, if you're trying, as particularly as a fast oxidizer, if you need a fairly high degree of protein and you're trying to supplement with proteins sources that don't work, like, yeah. uh, you know, nut and seed-based protein sources or um, chlorella and spirulina, which is a big staple in the raw foodie uh, diet, um, or even soy, which is just completely laced and GMO'd and they're genetically modified and not so great and it's very hormonally disruptive to men. Mm-hmm. So A lot of estrogen and so lots, lots of estrogen, totally. So, you know, I'm not getting the nutrition. My hormones just start to flatline and I'm watching my body just go through this process yeah. of like weakening before my eyes. Yeah. And the, every time I check in, like, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this my soul's level calling? Which is a, which is a really helpful question to ask when you're really neutral. Uh-huh. Like if I have attachment to the outcome, I'm going to shape the answer. Sure. If I'm attached to my body, and it's not, you know, it's okay to be attached to our bodies because we're in a physical vessel, and our bodies are attached to us. <laughs> and it feels good to be on our game and to look good and to feel good and sure. have that vibrancy. And I was just watching my body just kind of, kind of weaken, yeah. almost overnight. And every time I checked in over those. Over those couple of years, it was like, yes, this is just where I'm supposed to be. Because I had been so driven, so yang, so like the little general, hard on myself. I was the best at everything, and second place sucked. And I, and I would curse anybody else for making <laughs> second place. Right. And I was just really hard on everybody, ch- chiefly me. And what it did, because I was so yang, I was so in that masculine, that couple of years really soften me into my patience and my kindness and my more feminine side and my listening and my ability to just have faith and not be so driven and it was a really challenging time and it was one of the um, times that taught me the most about the ability to listen above my ego mm-hmm. for what's in my highest good mm-hmm. and that to, and I, I'm, that's still that's, a practice that's really hard you know I know <laughs> For me, even in a, you know, it's it's hard to separate your kind of body identity and your sense of fitness and vibrance with your sense of confidence and self worth. Um, I know for me, when I've been in periods where, you know, I've just kind of had other priorities and really kind of let my body go down, I've noticed a, I have to fight against at least a palpable lack of kind of just self-confidence as a man yeah man the bravado yeah 
We're it's, kind of it's 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 a part of the testosterone Y genetic makeup. I mean, mm-hmm. it's ingrained in us. Mm-hmm. We're not that far from a warrior culture. Yeah, you know, our ancestors were driven, and you know, before all the modern day luxuries, we had to go out in, in the the woods and find our food and forage and. And, and the, the masculine role and the feminine roles were typically more delineated because of just, if nothing else, because of a physical prowess, yep. a physical level of ability and a nurturing side that, that women have that, that's more of a feminine-based characteristic. Mm-hmm. So those roles were a little bit more easily defined, whereas now you've... You know, you got metrosexual men and you got guys that that really feel good getting all dolled up. And they, you know, like uh, in Thailand, it was the first time I was really exposed to a culture that celebrated, quote, the lady boys. Yeah. You know, and, and they're very beautiful, man. These guys are rock solid. I mean, they would kick my ass <laughs> in a heartbeat. I mean, these guys are like Thai boxers walking yeah. around in thong speedos, <laughs> you know, in high heels and proud of it. You know, and it's like in that degree of confidence, in that degree of like self-expression and freedom, I just really started to admire. And and it was part of this kind of, you know, softening of my ego and, and that opportunity for me to try and find confidence outside of, Mm-hmm. The, the machismo that I had grown up in. I'm, I'm from South Central Texas where, you know, Marlboro men were the kind of the, the, the epitome of your, like, masculine evolution. Right. The hard loner with a cigarette. I mean, I, I, I did it all, man. I, I grew up wearing cowboy boots, cowboy hats, and chewing tobacco. And that's, a, you know, and that's an aspect, too, that shouldn't be tossed aside and neglected. You know, that real... You know, you, you had your background in that. So for you personally to learn lessons on a deeper level, you needed to experience the other. Mm. Um, but, you know, a lot of people who, you know, don't let him saying that if you've never experienced really what your body is like at peak condition mm. and peak performance. And you're a man and you haven't ever really felt what your body as a warrior and as a hunter's potential could be. That's something you need to experience too. Totally. You know, I mean, that's, that's part of it. It is about the balance, you know? So for you, it was the balance was letting that go for a little while, you know, for someone else who's been letting it go for a long time, (laughs) it's time to go the other way. way. Really, you know, put in your time, put in the grind, see what that body, you know, that gift you have is made of. Yeah. See how you can turn your body into a Ferrari, yeah. you know, if it's been kind of an old clunker truck for a while, <laughs> yeah. you know, because we we have this unlimited potential for rejuvenation. We re, our bodies are meant to be self healing machines, and we live in an environment now that globally is getting well. I shouldn't say globally, at least from a Western in, industrialized culture, is getting more sedentary. Mm-hmm. We traditionally we were talking about grounding the other day. We'll talk about yeah, more yeah. Of that. So. For example, most people sit down, you know, at, at their desk. They sit down when they drive. They sit down when they watch TV. Um, that by itself is one of the main reasons that the the incidence of prostate cancer is so high and uterine and ovarian cancer is so high because the pelvic girdle is stagnant, sitting down mm-hmm. for 18 hours a day. Mm-hmm. We're not built to do that. We're not meant to do that. Right. And so we have these somewhat sedentary lifestyles and we and there's more toxicity. Is that is that lymphatic? Is that a lymphatic a huge issue? Lymphatic. Just cuz you're sitting and it's just all yeah. the fluids are kind of collecting it's, and it's not flushing out. It's lymphatic in which is extraordinarily accurate. And one of the reasons is that 
most of the lymph tissue is um, in the gut, uh-huh. gut-associated lymphoid tissue. And when the lymphatic system gets really congested, it fills up with toxins and it can't move. And the lymphatic system is, is like a pump that you move through your own body kinesthetics. Your own body movement pumps that machine of the lymph system. It doesn't have its own pump like the cardiovascular system does. Right. So if you're not moving, it's not pumping. So it's getting more and more congested. And when you add on top of that, the crappy diets that people eat and the congestion in the colon and constipation, people just aren't draining the lymphatic system in the pelvic girdle, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, you could take the same kind of diet, but without as much of the problem if you're in a, if you're in a, a culture that moves a lot and walks a lot, like some of the cultures in Europe, lots of walking. Some of the cultures in Central and South America, lots of dancing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they yeah, got yeah, their yeah, juices yeah. going. The hit. I, I grew up with. I grew up dating, you know, Hispanic girls in San Antonio, and and I, we would go to these, you know, like weddings, and their grandmas would drive me into the ground <laughs> dancing. And this is while I'm playing soccer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they got their hips going, and like the the samba and the marimba, <laughs> and they're, they're just like they've got that juice, yeah, right? And, they, yeah. and so they don't see as much of some kind of diseases that would be the result of a sedentary lifestyle. So it's about diet and lifestyle and, and, and that amount of ability to turn our environment into a healing environment, get rid of the toxins, do some flushes, part of what you're doing, mm-hmm. have the experience of your body becoming rejuvenative in front of your eyes, and then reorient to that shifting into that fifth gear in, in a model that helps you sustain that. Put yourself around people who are doing the same kind of activities. If you want to know what you're thinking, traditionally, look at what the people around you are thinking. If you want to generally be able to reflect on what's happening in your life, look at your five most closest friends. Yeah. You know, because you're like the company you keep. So if, like you were talking about before, and it's happened for me, if I start making significant changes in my consciousness, in in my attitude towards life, in a particular orientation that now draws a chasm between my primary partner or my circle of friends, then I've got the opportunity to stay on my path or leave my path and hang out with them some more. Yep. And I've, you know, my friends, um, you know, they look at kind of like what I'm doing now, it, like it's crazy, <laughs> you know, like they, there's not well, a whole they knew, lot of, Yeah, they knew the old you. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah, and, and, they're, they're, and if you hang out with them too long after you make big changes, it's almost like their eyes, just even the way they look at you, even if they're being cool, but the way they know you and look at you, unless they can kind of look at that with a, you know, kind of wash free the lens of perception, it can start to, you'll start to feel that and you'll start to almost conform just because it feels better. There's less conflict for you to kind of fit into the, to the lenses that they're wearing that they want to see you in. Yeah. So it's, it's certainly a risk. Yeah. But to get to, so, so people still don't even know where you're at. You still have more of your own journey to get to. So, yeah. so I'm not going to let you, let you stop your story here. So, right. all right, so you go study here. And then, and then what, at what point did you decide, all right, I got to get to the jungle? Yeah, so I was down at the tree. And um, it's this uh, clinic in the middle of the desert. It's an hour and a half from any major city. And it's kind of nice because it's really... Uh, it's a very clear grid. It's a very clear energetic and psychic grid. So when people go, it's re- it just really invites you to just release, release all your shit. There's mm-hmm. not a whole lot of distraction, so you're kind of meeting yourself a lot. And um, 
I had already experienced some work with the plant medicines of the Amazon mm -hmm. just before going to the tree down. This is in Patagonia, Arizona. Um, when I was in Portland, I had my first ayahuasca experience. Nice. And it was a game changer. Yeah. And I thought, whoa, okay, <laughs> wow. Now, was that your first psychedelic experience at all, or was this your first um, DMT? It was my yeah. first DMT experience. Yeah. I had smoked pot a fair bit. <laughs> Thankfully, had left that because that was just not working for me anymore. Yeah. Um, but like any medicine, it's medicine until it, you use it and you abuse it, and then it becomes poison. Right. And so I had I had let go of that, which was awesome. And um, I had done mushrooms a couple of times, and I had some pretty um, powerful experiences, but nothing like nothing like the first ayahuasca. ayahuasca. Yeah. Man, uh, I mean, I had I I I just I received so much back, you know, so much of myself that had been split off. Mm -hmm. Received so much back, so much clarity, so much inspiration to take this now move down to Patagonia and a complete new re reorientation to my life. So I had this in the back of my mind. So the ayahuasca session itself was a catalyst for you to go to the tree then? It to was. A certain, you know, to a certain extent, yeah. yeah. It's like, bam, big change required right sure. now. Sure, And um, so I was down at the tree for a couple of years. And then um, over time, I recognized, okay, yeah, my mind is settling. Um, I'm coming back into balance, right? Because that now the pendulum has swung way over into the yin, into the feminine, into the yep. just patience and the stillness. Which and you've is, been on that vegan diet. And is, I'd been on that raw vegan diet, which yeah. is my hormones were still flatlined <laughs> after a couple of years. Yep. I mean, there wasn't just wasn't like a whole lot of juice. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a whole lot of even interest. My libido was low. My testosterone, I know, was in the toilet. Yeah. Um, and I still knew it was, there was the right thing to do until a couple of years after being at the tree, I started getting slowly more of the call to go be in the jungles. Yeah. And um, so I reconnected with somebody that I'd sat with before and I uh, went into ceremony and got really strong confirmation um, that, okay, I had learned, because my, my, my process was like, okay, I'd learned allopathic medicine. I had learned some of holistic medicine and rejuvenative medicine. I really want to learn now the spirituality of medicine. Mm -hmm. And I, and I want to experience medicine from a completely different lens, yeah. completely different cosmology. And I really am so deeply curious about the energetic components of plant shamanism and how the shamans from these traditional cultures can read the energetic field of someone from you know several feet away and sure. know where the holes are and know what plants to prescribe and then we're not talking about ayahuasca because in the dieta setting and you know being down there the ayahuasca in that dieta setting she just opens the door for you to actually get the healing and the teaching from the uh master teacher plants right yeah and so the the jungle shaman walk around with this pharmacopoeia in their mind because they've experienced all these different medicines and know exactly what medicines to bring in to strengthen someone's power center, to help them harmonize their heart, to help them release old trauma, to help them restructure their neurochemistry. There's certain plants that do different aspects of this work. And it was fascinating to me that somebody could develop the skill to be able to read another's field from several feet away and know what plant introduced right. to them and, and really let the plant do the work. Yeah. You know, the, the, the shaman's just the facilitator. He's like 
like we were talking about before, he offers the buffet and he makes a recommendation, you know, take this medicine and let her teach you, let her or him teach you this plant spirit. And so I left everything um, from the tree, got rid of all my stuff, sold it or gave it away, got down to a backpack and had a few thousand dollars in my bank account at that time. I was still kind of paying off student loans. And um, but I was like, okay, I got a little bit of savings. I'm going to go down for anywhere from a few months to a few years. I don't know when I'm going to come back. And I'm going to apprentice. I'm going to find somebody to study with. Yeah. And, um, and boy, howdy, that those, first, <laughs> those first 60 days, I did 35, 40 ceremonies in about 60 days. Wow. And just got my, comp- I just got dismantled. You yeah, know, yeah. my whole I ego just imagine. got dismantled. You know, I, I go down for five days and drink three times. And that's rejuvenating, but exhausting, psychically, you know, exhausting. I mean, you're going through some really powerful stuff, physically and mentally. So to think about doing 40 days out of 60, it's like when I look at those SEAL training videos, and I'm like, <laughs> and you're swimming again with a log on you? What are you, are you crazy? You just finished swimming all day. Yeah. You know? So, uh, yeah, that's intense so all right so talk a little bit more about that yeah it was um you know (laughs) my style is kind of like to jump in and see what happens (laughs) right and go for it so i went for it and um and i don't really recommend that (laughs) 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 because it is at least not that intense you know because it's very dismantling and it's very disorienting and as Gabriel, um, you know, told me when I was at the tree, and I didn't really appreciate what he was trying to tell me at that time. But one of his favorite sayings is, if you haven't built the container, if you haven't cultivated the vessel, then you, you can't hold the magic. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, there was so much energy coming through those ceremonies. Uh, I essentially got manic. I didn't need to sleep. I had all these great ideas. I could run for days. And eventually, my circuits blew. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to uh, get out of there. And so I traveled for a little while and looked for some stillness in the jungle. And it was really difficult for me to do because um, I was just so psychically raw, energetically raw. I couldn't really be around other people. I did, and, and, I, and, then, and there was just so much to integrate. I yeah. really wanted to just get still and quiet and they and say, listen. they say, you know, the shamans all say it takes up to what, six months to fully integrate? One ceremony. One ceremony. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so to do 40, I mean, it's just a massive amount yeah. of information crashing against your perception, you know, infiltrating your spirit and images and sounds and feelings and thoughts. Um, yeah. You're just bombarded. Lot. Yeah. You know, it, your energetic system just gets completely bombarded. You know, it's like, Geez, what would it be like? Um, it's kind of like when your hand falls asleep and you got those tingles. Yeah. Right? You're all of a sudden the, the blood flow that comes in that wakens those nerve endings is really intense. Well, imagine that being like the whole experience you have throughout your psyche, being that alive, but also that intense. Mm-hmm. And needing and, and any degree of intensity when they're when you're around other people, it magnifies that yeah. because you can pick up on their energy now. Like taking too much beta alanine and then <laughs> and be like, "Whoa, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, Somebody turn body. down the volume, please." <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I came back to the States and, um, and got quiet for a, a few months. Actually, I, I got, my immune system got completely wonky um, because I wasn't sleeping so much. And that's when we really rejuvenate is during our sleep time. Yeah. So I got uh, bilateral cellulitis on both legs, almost to that like, like flesh-eating kind of bacteria, mm-hmm. cellulitis. And, um, and it was nasty. So I came back with my legs just in these pus-filled bandages and it was epic. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out how to, because I was still holistically oriented at that time. And, and, that, and at that time, I was maybe a bit too much. Right. Because I was like, I'm not using antibiotics. Uh, yeah. I'm going to figure out how to cure this. It took me three months to cure that. Um, whereas maybe after a, a, you know, a week of cephalosporin or, you know, maybe an antibiotic would have cured it. Yeah, sure. But and I was so stubborn at that time. You could have spent, you could have spent one more week to restore the probiotics. And, and, and be done and, after two weeks. Whereas, done, no, yeah. it took me three months. So after my legs well, got back. You kind of got to overcorrect. Sometimes, I don't know, you don't have to, but usually for most people, you got to overcorrect a little bit. You, you know? know, for me, that's, that's kind of like my motto in college and med school is nothing in moderation. <laughs> nothing in moderation. Nothing in moderation. Yeah. Like everything was to the extreme. I studied intense. I played intense. You know, I loved intense. I was pissed off intense. It was whatever it was, it was intense. Uh-huh. And it's not the best path to longevity. <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. know? So now things are much more moderated and thankfully so. But at that time, since I had gone so far into allopathic medicine and now I was so turned on to holistic medicine, I was bastardizing allopathic medicine. Yeah. I was saying, no, I mean... Unless something gets cut off, I'm not going in. Unless, yeah. unless I get full blown, you know, sepsis yeah. throughout my whole body, <laughs> I'm not going in. And everybody right. was looking at my legs, going, "Dude, you got to go get that done, checked out, like now." And I was like, "No, I don't have sepsis yet." <laughs> so I'm doing. Listen, I'm a doctor. <laughs> don't forget. And b- by the way, the best the best thing to use was colloidal silver. Really, really good colloidal silver. It's one of the few topically things, topically, topically and internally. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few things that will stop MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, that flesh-eating bacteria, will stop it in its tracks. Very cool. Yeah, better than antibiotics will. Very cool. Is there any, I heard a, I think it's just maybe a, a myth, but it may be true, that the, the saying about a silver spoon, born, born with a silver spoon in your mouth, had something to do with the people, and when the plague was going around, the people who had silver spoons weren't getting sick. Interesting. No, I've so never heard that. the myth is that. that they were getting, you know, they were getting some elemental silver totally. from their that silver. That makes wear, so much sense. And they weren't getting sick. So it was like, oh, well, fucking they got the silver spoons. In right. Their mouth, you Lucky know? So, them. Yeah. So right. That's knows? cool. Well, that, that you could know, be a myth, but there could be some Similarly, some I've heard that the, the, the settlers that came out west, the first people, the first foreign people, uh, on these lands in the United States, the settlers would travel with these big barrels of water because they didn't know when they were going to be able to find fresh water. So they would carry their water until the next source. And in order to keep it clean from, um, you know, because they didn't know some of these sources were contaminated with like sure. Giardia, Giardia. Yeah. Um, they would put silver dollars no shit. at the bottom of the water barrels. Yeah, to clean that up because it does release that elemental silver. Yeah. Yeah, powerful stuff. So silver saved the day three (laughs) months later. And then I went back to the jungles again because when I blew my circuits, I didn't finish my dieta. Yeah. At least the the last dieta I started there. I've done a few different dietas 
and the dieta, the, I couldn't finish it. I just, I, I what, what a testament to your perseverance or stubbornness or something. <laughs> you go for 40 days, get your circuits blown, come back with your legs about to fall off, and you're like, I'm not finished there yet. <laughs> Most yeah. people be like, fuck that place, yeah. I'm fucking out. Yeah. But you had more work to do. So. I had more work to do. And it was really good that I went back because I went back in a different I didn't go back as like a greedy American, like, ooh, I want more of this experience, give me more. I want to study with you, teach me. Yeah. You know, the first person I went to study with, in the middle of ceremony, I go up in my broken English, I mean, sorry, my broken Spanish, and I tried to tell him in Spanish, you're my teacher. You know, tu es mi maestro. You know, por favor. Yeah, right, and I'm like, I don't even know what I'm saying. And he, he could tell what, the funny thing is, he could kind of tell, well, I'm sure he could tell what I meant. Because the next few days he ignored me, and and one of my and, and, and one of my um, friends who was much more experienced with ayahuasca and I, was actually studying with him at the time. He said, "If you're really serious about studying, um, Guillermo's going to ignore you because he wants to see what you do. He yeah. wants to see how committed you are." Yeah. And um, and what I realized was that I was demanding, just like any other Westerner going down to the jungles, demanding something. First, it was demanding uh, rubber, mm-hmm. right? When if you a book called One River is a really powerful account of how we as Westerners have decimated the jungles yeah. and the and the native peoples by demanding through our greed rubber and oil, and it's still happening. And I was just doing that same thing. I was demanding an experience. I was demanding medicine. I mean, I wasn't an asshole. I didn't have a right. gun or a machete. But I was essentially doing the same kind of thing. And so the second time I went down, I, I went down from a much different humble place. Yeah. I really got humbled. And that was really good for me. Mm-hmm. And now I just have so much more reverence for the people and and their their traditions and the way they 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 make relationships with living things before asking anything of it or from it more out of gratitude, you know, like the native peoples here, you know, my first, really my first entry into spirituality was through Tibetan Buddhism and then through Lakota Native American spirituality and through the sweat lodge community. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the native peoples are similar, you know, aho metakuyeo yasin. Metakuyeo yasin is to all my relations and, and thank you that I recognize my place in the tapestry of life. Sure. And before I take anything, if it's a grandfather to put a grandfather in the pit and to take a grandfather from the pit into the lodge. That means, for people who don't know what that means, in the sweat lodge to Moscow ceremony, grandfather is a stone that you put inside uh, the sweat lodge, which is like a, a navel in the earth. Mm-hmm. And you bring the grandfather rocks into the navel to, to heat it up and you splash water for steam and herbs. And it's a really incredibly powerful experience. I actually have a blog about uh, Tomaskal I did up on the site. So, so check that out if you want a few more details on it. But the grandfather is these molten hot stones that you're bringing in. Mm-hmm. And before we do anything, especially in ceremony, we ask, uh, we ask, we just ask, you know, thank you in a good way, may I receive this medicine? Mm-hmm. Thank you in a good way, yes, we receive this heat into our lodge, we receive this mini wachuni, this this uh, sacred water, uh, you know, to, to provide the purification and the steam. And, and, and we pray in the four directions and we recognize that there are spirit helpers in each of the directions. And, um, and I've had powerful experiences um, bridging both the Lakota tradition and, 
and some work with ayahuasca and, and receiving support from spirit helpers. And, and it's, that's not surprising because at the root of all this, you're accessing truth and source, you know. And when you're doing that, whatever your, you know, translation, whatever your ceremony, whatever your kind of ritual is, if it's grounded in that, you're going to find value in all of it. Uh-huh. You know, it's just when it gets off course and it gets really manipulated by power and ego that some of the ceremonies are like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> you know, let's get rid of that. Right. We can discard that one. Right. You know, but when you're really trying to access and successfully accessing. Well, it's a, good, it's a good point you're bringing up and it's probably the, the most important point personally um, I can bring up in regards to ayahuasca is really be mindful of who's pouring the medicine. Absolutely. Because their consciousness goes into the brew. And the the Andean, I mean, so the Amazonian jungle shamanic path is not a spiritual path, it's a power path. And traditionally speaking. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have, you know, historically, shamans throwing black magic at each other and darts at each other and do um, take advantage of situations when particularly Westerners are going down wide-eyed and thick-walleted and wanting a particular experience, um, it's really important to know the integrity field. Sure. Not only from, you know, the intention they put in the brew, but sometimes they'll throw detura in the brew. Right. And that was, I was actually just talking to Mitch Schultz, who did the documentary DMT, The Spirit Molecule. He is got a lot of connections down there and he actually knew the shaman that was involved in that kid's uh, unfortunate kid's death recently and uh you know didn't have the the best things to say about this shaman's um you know kind of moral attitude which obviously went to show that the shaman was trying to bury the kid instead of saying hey accidentally wow this kid died he was just burying him on the property so obviously there's (laughs) that's a warning sign there (laughs) that's not a subtle one that's not so but yeah but detura was you know one of the things one of the possibilities of mixing it which is a poison just well interestingly enough detura grows more than any at least that i'm familiar with right now uh, grows more actively than any other antheogenic medicine on this property and in this area. And when you come in the spring and summertime, detour is everywhere. Yeah. You see these huge, big, white trumpet flowers. And it's powerful medicine when you know how to use it. Yeah. And, and there are different ways to cultivate that. And I don't recommend at all people start to experiment with how to, yeah. how to brew that medicine because it does take a lot of wisdom. And so, but just like with anything else, um, when we use it in a mindful way, nature provides yeah. medicine, powerful medicine. And when we overuse it or misuse it, it becomes poison. Well and said. the the ayahuasca is just like many of the other antheogens, like iboga. Um, well, I can't imagine mixing an MAOI with the detura is a good idea. I don't. I've never. Who, know, who really knows? But. Well, in in the jungles, uh, they call detura toy. And, um, and I have seen it used um, only in depictions, in pictures. Yeah. I've seen Datura with ayahuasca used in a brew. Interesting. Um, and, and I don't think it's terribly uncommon, but I think you just have to really know what you're careful. doing. Yeah. Super careful. And um, so these antheogens, whether they're African antheogens in the Iboga sure. or the Amazonian uh, antheogens, um, or the Andean anti like Wachuma, mm-hmm. very different um, and very powerful medicine. They're becoming more and more available to help us wake up. Yep. 
and and showing scientifically reproducible benefits like we casually mentioned that Johns Hopkins study with psilocybin powerful study yeah. beautifully done very well researched um, do a Google search for Johns Hopkins psilocybin um, re- uh, study I think it was maybe 09 or, or 2010 and um, talks about the before and after effects of people who had never had psilocybin before although we're classified as practicing some degree of spirituality and um, over two-thirds said it was in the top five most spiritually illuminating experiences of their whole lives and that effect lasted for six months uh, and that was as, that was only as far as the study went. They were going to do a one year follow up, yep. but I didn't. And see a that. couple of them said it was the most significant. A third of them oh. said it was the most significant. <laughs> yeah. A third of all the people. So I mean, it's just it's it's. So a, what do your what do your what do your colleagues say? You know, your old <laughs> your old med school colleagues that are still stuck in that young. Oh, what are you, what are you doing with those mushrooms? Well, drugs, you know, it's, poison. It's so funny. Um, so I. In med school and in residency, I was, I was already kind of like um, there's a book called The House of God, which was a depiction of a residency, an internship, written in like the late 70s, and it was this kind of uh, depiction of this debauchery that would go on intern year, and it's kind of true. So there was you know, there were people in my residency taking, you know, just these crazy trips on things like ketamine and, yeah, and, and sure. opiates. Like John Lilly, that's a, he's a famous one for doing the ketamine in the isolation uh, tank. I, I would much rather do an antheogen that yeah. comes from nature than some synthetic yeah, I, that yeah, yeah. is going to be completely... So that's a good... It's a, it's a good representation, for me at least, to, to talk about altered states of consciousness. You can have those experiences that are disintegrating... Right, they they split parts of our psyche, like LSD classically can do that. Mm-hmm. Or you can have altered states of consciousness that typically are more integrating, mm-hmm. and they bring back split parts of ourselves, and they align us and in, in our psychic matrix more coherently. And those are things like psilocybin, like ayahuasca, like iboga. Mm-hmm. Um, marijuana can do that when held really reverently, mm-hmm. but when used and abused it becomes the opposite i've I've known examples of that as well and it depends on the person's constitution too for sure you know how well they handle it someone like you know joe rogan he handles it superbly you know and it is a great medicine it's the as bob marley said it's the mirror that you hold up for yourself Mm. you know and for him it is he can he can you know take a bunch of marijuana in a variety of ways eat it smoke it whatever um, and go in his isolation tank and really access truth in a true mirror. And then, you know, I have other, I have other people I know who smoke so much that you almost get this, just this fantastical representation of reality and your role in it that's just not grounded anymore. Mm. It's like, this is all going to happen to me, man. <laughs> like, it's all coming together, man. Right. Like, well, what are you doing? Like, uh-huh. What Show me doing? the evidence. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> you've been saying that for a long time, but I ain't seen shit. You know, uh-huh. like you got to get up and do it, son. Right. You know, like that's so. Yeah, certainly it can become yeah. medicine or uh, or hindrance. Yeah. yeah, and so it's the same kind of thing we were talking about food. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on your relationship with it and what works for you. Same, same thing with workouts and with exercise. It depends on the the style of workout that works for you, your type of training, how it matches your constitution, and what are your desired outcomes. 
So when we, like Krishnamurti talks about, become our own primary authority in our own life, and we put ourselves in the laboratory, so to speak, and we really choose to um, receive as much information as we can, try it on for size, and then put our own expert lens as our own filter of analysis, make, does it make sense for me or not? And whose expectations am I living up to? And if it does work for me, how do I choose to use it in a good way? Mm -hmm. And so we're coming back to like the idea of uh, the power path in the jungles. You know, when you mirror the power path with the spiritual path is doing exactly what you're talking about. That's when you really become a warrior poet. Yeah. Because you have the the power and the strength and the stamina and the endurance and the, and the fire and the juice to bring it forth. And you're also really guided by principle and virtue and altruism and those, and those characteristics that really inspire us to be better people and, and to be able to create a better world around us versus, you know, just seeing what can I get out of it for me. Absolutely. That's yeah. it. So I, I totally salute what you're doing, oh, man. Thanks, brother. I, to I totally salute you for embodying it, you know, and really being able to to talk to someone like yourself who really, you know, gets it on that level. It's been a it's been a real treat. Mm. So I think it's a good point here to segue kinda into a little bit of what I've been doing and then you can kinda talk about uh, you know, a little bit more from the expert level of what's been going on. But basically I, I came here to Grace Grove for um, you know, I had some nagging health issues and after 31 years, you know, I lived a lot of them pretty hard, you know, did, a, you know, plenty of drinking and uh, still, you know, will occasionally tie one on and go pretty hard. I mean, uh, if you see any pictures from my Halloween experience, you know, you know that, you know, dressed up as a thundercat until eight in the morning, I was doing bad things to my body, you know. So to, to come here to do a liver and gallbladder cleanse, I think was, you know, really the primary objectives. And I'd heard some things about some of the other spiritual paths, but I was like, well, you know, I'm going to get a cleanse and anything else is just the gravy. Um, turned out at the end of it, the cleanse might've been the gravy. And the other stuff was the real meat of what I got out of here. Um, so basically, it comes you get a you get a nice uh, nice meal of some really deliciously cooked uh, stew and uh, some salad, and then you start on a uh, a cleansing protocol, which Five, is six days. Six days, yeah. six day cleansing protocol. You start with a smoothie in the morning, which is you know some kind of vegetable, fruit. Um, is there any kind of protein source in that? Or? I think there's uh, sometimes there's a fair bit of hemp seed or maybe a little bit of a nut butter. Uh huh. Um, maybe some chlorella or some spirulina just to give you a little bit of protein because bit. it's it's nice to have some um, calories going in to push the detox yeah. in, a, in a good way. Um, the times when I've led fasting retreats and I fasted myself, um, oftentimes I see people go through a little bit harder time because they just don't have as much calories to push their detox to, to drive their detox pathways enough to push those toxins out. Right. Yeah. And so when we were taking um, kind of like a detox formula and yeah. a dropper of a, some kind of yeah, acidic... Yeah, so, so the, the diet, just to summarize that, yeah. so it's uh, smoothies in the morning, juices in the afternoon, uh, soups at night, mm -hmm. all blended, all liquid. So it's still liquid diet. It's still... Um, gentle on your digestive system and gives it a bit of a break, but it gives you enough nutrients to support the cleanse. Sure. And the supplements that you take are generally things to support the the liver and the gallbladder. 
the liver to run its 600 plus detox reactions and all the things it does for the body and the gallbladder to prep it to purge the gallstones. And you take um, a formula to open, to slowly open up the bile duct and to soften the stones and the gall sludge within the gallbladder. Mm-hmm. And you take that over that five day period. You also take some enzymes that help um, flush out some of that like undigested mucoid layer that you know just about everybody has because of the way we eat. Unless you're eating, you know, food right from your garden, no processed food of any sort, you're gonna accumulate some by some some food residue. Right. And and that sets up as you know either a fairly thin encrusted layer, or for some people a really thick encrusted layer. You know, the story goes. I don't, I've heard different reports, but the story goes for like. John Wayne, when he died, <laughs> had a lot of impacted he feces. He had 40 pounds <laughs> of impacted fecal matter caked throughout his intestinal lining. Yeah. Right. So, so all of these supplements, the digestive enzymes, particularly as it relates to digesting and releasing that stuff, helps just open the channels. And so when you're opened up, it's, and, and this is why it's really helpful to do, and I've done it without supervision, with supervision, with a plan, not with a plan. I've done it a lot of the wrong ways to do it. <laughs> and and it which is good because I can speak from that standpoint. It's really good to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. Sure. Cuz if you do decide to go through a cleansing process and in a detoxification and, and your body's not ready for it or you're not doing all the things to support it, you can really just move around deck chairs and piss off the gremlins and move the toxins from places where your body has strategically stored them so that they won't interfere with like vital organs. When you start detoxifying, if you're not opening the channels of detoxification to get that stuff out, then the body now is releasing those stores and then it goes to the brain and the heart and the kidneys and 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 it really starts to override the system. Yeah. And then you can really set yourself up for some long-term challenges. I, I did that with heavy metals, for instance. Some kind of chelation? Yeah. Just it, moved it out of muscles right. and exactly. into organs. Yeah, you mentioned that. So I think that's, a, that's an interesting thing, and I never really even thought of it that way. I mean, I think a lot of us think of, oh, detox is detox. I can do that. Yeah, well. Easy. Yeah, you know. Bring really, it on. Yeah, exactly. I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. <laughs> totally. That Sign was me. I'm in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, so a lot of the eliminative, eliminative process that we've been doing, we did um, some colonics, which is one to flush out the digestive system. But in and that, between, that, that, was that your first one? No, I did some in Austin. Uh, the okay. first, the very first colonic I did was a fairly religious experience. <laughs> you moved some old stuff. You right. come out of there like wide-eyed, like you whoa. Know, yeah, I mean, it's like half. A little bit violated, but mostly open. <laughs> like it's it's crazy, and it's really a positive, a positive experience. But this was um, this was just kind of supporting this process. Yeah. This was the first time I had an attendant actually working on me. Though I had a different system where I just sit in a kind of uh-huh. chair. You did it yourself. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird too. Don't get me wrong. Which is weird too. <laughs> uh, but then also in between that, we're taking oxygenated magnesium, yeah. which is helping to kind of oxymag helps to flush, flush out, out the bowels. And, yeah. So anytime you're doing a detox, nine times out of ten, if you feel shitty, you should just do another bowel irrigation, mm-hmm. and that's either an enema, or a colonic, or kind of a hybrid between the two. It's called a, a kalima, mm-hmm. um, or take a lot of oxymag. 
because you just want to be moving the bowels through. The bowels are your best organ, your biggest organ of elimination. And if you're moving the bowels, then you're flushing the liver mm-hmm. because the bowels and the liver are connected through this portal vein circulation. So when you're flushing the bowels, the liver has an opportunity to dump. Yeah. So you've got the supplements that you were taking, the colonics that you were doing, uh, foot baths, yeah. saunas, just and a lot. Did, and we also did a, a parasite cleanse, which was pretty cool, which is where we were, um, you know, and you obviously know a little bit more, but from my understanding, I was holding on to electrical currents, yeah. which were driving some of the parasites out of their comfortable spots totally. in my guts and in my flesh and into some of the more open spaces in my digestive cavity. And then I ripped down a shot of uh, ozonated olive oil, yeah. And they—that's just like the raid for the, for these parasites. Is, is that a pretty accurate a description? Great description, totally. Yeah. So that in itself, after after that, I had a. That was actually the hardest night. Was that first night after I did that? Um, you hear about the detox, the die-off symptoms, but that night was really kind of the toughest I think for me it was just I felt the shittiest yeah uh, and that was right off at the start yeah you know day day one doing that yeah it, and it makes sense because you know parasites and microbes they hold on to a fair bit of toxins just by themselves like parasites will hold on to heavy metals and when you start to purge uh, parasites or virus residue bacteria residue um, amoeba residue, whatever it might be, they start to release what they've been holding on to. And you get this die-off reaction. Mm-hmm. And if it's the first time you've ever done that, it can be a really like, whoa, kind of yeah. disorienting experience. Now your body does feel a little overloaded. Gratefully for you, and this is, by the way, I've done a lot of different parasite protocols, coach people through a lot of different parasite protocols. This one that we're doing is the most efficient, effective one I've seen by far. Uh, to be able to rid your body of of the known parasites that we can test you for, know exactly what you need uh, to take to minimize the die-off reaction, have all of that done in six days is unheard of just about. Yeah, it's like an, ex- it's just a totally accelerated program. I mean, most parasite protocols are weeks. Yeah. You know, really six weeks. weeks or, if or if you're doing it on like a pure fast, I mean, the parasites come out in, at three-week mark, at the yeah. four-week mark, you know, yeah. and it, that's a fucking long time to <laughs> devote is. to this. It's you know, investment. You, you got to be really committed <laughs> to do that. What percentage of people you think have uh, some kind of unhealthy, because we all have parasites, no matter how many times right. you zap yourself, you're still going to have them. But what do you think, what, what percentage of people you think have an unhealthy burden of, well, of parasites? Well, the, the point you're making, I think, is a really great one, which is, you know, for example, from a Chinese medicine standpoint, it's not so much the pathogens or the bacteria, the parasites, it's the terrain. Mm-hmm. So if your body can tolerate it, if your body can move that stuff through, if the body can harmonize all of the living vital energies within it in a good way, great. Most people are under that kind of umbrella that you're describing, which is have an unhealthy degree of overburden in regards to pathogenic overload. And the pathogens are your classic virus, bacteria, um, nanobacteria, parasites. And parasites can be anywhere in the body. People typically think of parasites as being in the gut. That's oftentimes where we pick them up Mm -hmm. because eating food, like traveling in the jungles, drinking water, eating foods you're not used to. I stayed away from the guinea pig when I was down there. I can't imagine that that's 
probably the not, optimal food probably to not eat great. from a parasitic standpoint. Right. Before I really knew what I, the heck I was doing. You ate some guinea pig? I had some street vendor food in Cambodia. Ooh. And I came back from Thailand with some raging parasites. <laughs> and that wasn't the best thing because I just didn't know any better, you know? I just like, had an image of parasites in a gay club. Just, <laughs> just giving it out. Just copywriting right. at will. Just rolling their faces off. Loving it. Loving it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> totally. I know. It's so funny. The things that we do just being silly. Yeah. Um, and some of it's out of ignorance, not out of malice. Just like the the the, the general Western medical paradigm, I think, and, and this may be optimistic, I think is mostly um, practicing poor medicine out of ignorance, not malice. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are a whole lot of people that are really trying to do us harm. Yeah. Um, I think there are forces that would like to try and control the masses, but most docs are trying to do a good job. And and parasites is a really good example. We're not really taught about parasitology and how to treat parasites. We're, we're taught how to treat like big parasites, the ones you can see. Yeah. Um, tapeworms and that kind of stuff. But we're not really taught so much about how to treat all of the unseen parasites and the, and the really small ones that can like, for example, hang out in your eyeball. Yikes. Or in your brain because they cross the blood-brain barrier. Right? What do you do about those guys? Well, you try and find something that's going to drive them out of their hiding spot, which is why you hold on to that frequency generator. Uh-huh. It sets up a, a DC current, direct current frequency that those bugs don't like. It's like um, if you've ever seen, so I'm building my cabin, mm-hmm. and um, we were getting bats. And so um, we had to, while, while the windows are still off and they can hang out up and, up and roost, so we got this like sound generator, this real high frequency annoying, I mean it's annoying for anything within about 100 yards. Especially something that moves by sonar. Right, right. So they, they stay away because that sound is so annoying. That's what the frequency does to parasites. It's so annoying to them that they go as far as they can to get away from it. And that is essentially in your gut. Yeah. Because your gut is actually considered outside your body. Like, if you bled into your gut, you won't retrieve that blood volume. You'll poop it right out. Mm-hmm. Right? So, the gut lining is considered outside the body. So, all the parasites go there. And then you take the ozonated olive oil. And just like you said, yeah. that's the raid. So, bam. Done. History. <laughs> and then you have to find out how to heal the detox. Yeah. The die-off reaction. And those are the herbs that are specific to you. Yeah. That you needed to clear whatever you were clearing. Well, the, the effect has been quite remarkable you know you, you imagine that for some people probably listening to this haven't missed more than two meals in a row and that's not uncommon um and you would imagine that you know oh man i miss a meal i get cranky i get pissed off i get tired you know all those things for missing that that all passes quickly you know especially when you're getting the right nutrients supported in part of this cleanse you know you get that the high nutrient shake in the morning and you don't really need that much, you know, to, to keep you going. And I've had great energy generally. You know, I've had that a couple nights or that first night really where I felt kind of like I was getting sick a little bit and just not great. But other than that, I've had great energy. I brought some kettlebells out here. I was able to do a couple workouts with those. And um, even on yesterday, which is our flush day, which is no smoothie in the morning, uh, I was able to charge around one of the mountains out there and hike around. Um which actually is a, is a reasonable point to, uh, to talk about something that, uh, before we forget it, 
So we were hiking, and uh, before in a previous conversation I had with Dan, he was talking about uh, the grounding frequency of the earth itself. And this is something that um, Dave Asprey talked about on, uh, with, with Joe Rogan on his podcast as well, how he always brings his grounding mat with him wherever he goes. And he learned that from a time that he did yoga in the park after traveling to London. Uh, his feet were on the grass, and he said his, his jet lag improved dramatically. His jet lag response improved dramatically from that. Um, so, so you were saying that there's actually some, some evidence from cyclists using it. So, so what is what is going on here? What is this frequency from the earth? What is this all about? Yeah, the 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 technology originally called grounding technology, now called earthing technology. So if you're looking for it on the web, you can just do a Google search for earthing.com. Um, came out by a guy named Clint Ober. And um, he recognized the beneficial frequencies through just doing a whole lot of different research. I don't I think his background is as an engineer. Um, and he came across the, the powerful effect of connecting the body's electrical system, bare skin to the bare earth, and the reception of negative ions and the dissolution of inflama- inflammation, essentially. And so he didn't publicize it. Um, except to a few people to put out like some feelers of who wanted to be the beta tests. Mm-hmm. And one group um, that became lately a fairly well-known beta test for this technology was the, were the cyclists in the Tour de France. And um, it was a methodology that they could use that didn't have any side effects, that wouldn't show up on any tests as being <laughs> illegal, and that significantly cut down their um, recovery time. And so regardless of what they were in the midst of, like, you know, um, I was just at a, I just was at a conference with uh, Jeff Spencer, who's the old doc for the Tour de France throughout those, all those years that Lance won. And uh, he showed- I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, Jeff is an amazing guy. He's, yeah, a, sure. he's a great guy, he's a super doc. I don't know his level of involvement, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, but I, I think a lot of him and his work. And, he, and at this conference, he was showing some pictures of one of the riders who went through the rear windshield of a car. Because you got, you got pace cars behind the riders and in yeah, front of the riders, yeah. and this car, for whatever reason, had to stop, and this rider went straight through the back Yikes. windshield. And I didn't realize that the way the, the, the tour is set up is every body has to cross the line yeah other way otherwise the whole team's disqualified so this guy with an arterial laceration bleeding out of his bicep around his bicep tendon and uh, a pretty deep gash in his uh forehead where his helmet split um kind of hobbles across the finish line and by the way, he's got to race the next day. And if he doesn't race the next day, the whole team's disqualified. Oh, good thing he was a cyclist and not one of those European soccer players <laughs> rolling around on the ground. For, right. Still, yeah. still to this day. Right, I know, it's so funny, those guys. Yeah. yeah. And so Jeff hooked this guy up to one of those grounding. It wasn't... So the grounding mat itself actually, you know, bare feet on the earth, you get the current from the earth itself. The yeah. grounding mat somehow mimics that. Yeah, the way but. it does it is... Um, so that guy, that, that, that rider, gets hooked up to the grounding technology, 
and a whole lot of you know first aid and a whole lot of like real high quality nutrition rides the next day and um and has that hunger back you know mm-hmm. and because he woke up feeling good you could tell when he was going to sleep because of this picture when he was going to sleep that night he was like pretty worried he didn't yeah. think he was going to get back on yeah and um and then so those are just like some examples of the power of that rejuvenative practice of grounding and everybody has access to it it's, it's it just makes sense yeah we're bioenergetic beings we're we're from the earth it makes sense for our bare skin to be on the earth and most people don't do that they get out of bed they put their house shoes on they live in concrete foundation houses uh driving uh cars with you know rubber tires and wearing rubber soled shoes and they go to bed like that yeah and there's, I mean, there's so many people, I'm sure, and I'm sure I've even gone stretches, you know, where I haven't been at the beach. Obviously, at the beach, everybody's on, you know, on the sand. But, you know, other than that, you know, I'm not a big, I've never really loved grass. I get a little itchy from it. So I'm not like a roll around in the grass type of guy either. So I'm sure there's been huge stretches of my life where I haven't actually put my skin anywhere on the earth. Yeah. You know, period. And then, and then, you, and you have guys like Fronty who never wear shoes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in like a New York winter, yeah. won't wear shoes. I mean, in that, so- that song he has, you know, Walk a Mile in My Shoes, it's like, you ain't got no shoes, man. <laughs> Do it that way for a while, see how it feels. Yeah. And actually, during the summertime, pr- pretty much except in the, in the dead of winter, I'm usually barefoot. Because it just feels really good mm-hmm. to be that connected. Yeah, so, th- so where I got on this is in that hike. Uh, I tried to do as much of that hike as I could. It's, it's mostly rocks, so it's pretty easy. So yeah. it's nice climbing on the rocks with bare feet. And uh, so let it me give feels you, nice. Let me give you just a little bit of the science to, yeah, to yeah. give it some validation. Um, because it, it, it makes sense. But the cool thing I like about Ober is he sat on the data for 10 years until all the tests were done. And he could prove in the lab the benefits that he was seeing in his clients. And then when all the labs came out and the data came out and then he marketed it, the allopathic community couldn't say, oh, that's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could say, well, actually. Oh, go hug a tree, hippie. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And he could say, well, here's the data. Yeah. And so what you see is you see all the inflammatory markers drop and normalize. Cortisol levels normalize. Hormone levels optimize. Like DHE levels will optimize. The master hormone in the body. The zeta potential in the red blood cells uh, will minimize uh, to the extent that it's optimized so that all the red blood cells now look like those healthy, fluffy donuts versus all those stuck-together, gnarled-up, kind of like mangy Reese's peanut butter cups, (laughs) you know? And so so then the blood has more oxygen-carrying capacity. It's, It's more alive. And this is only after 45 minutes of being grounded. Just think of what happens when you're bare skin on that sheet all night. And the way it reproduces that effect is really brilliant, brilliant technology. I mean, the guy should win a Nobel Prize for it. It, it uses the electrical system in all modern buildings, which has a grounding prong, right? Mm-hmm. The three prong outlets, that, that middle lower prong is the grounding outlet. So you hook up this adapter that feeds, oh, you hook up that into the outlet and that feeds a wire that snaps into the sheet. Mm-hmm. And the sheet is laced with silver thread. And you put your bare skin on that. So it's essentially impregnating the earth's grounding field 
through that wire into the sheet. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, it just makes sense. And to use something that we're already doing, which is our three-pronged appliance, which we think of, you know, charges our computer, you know, but to also have that, uh, you know, just to, to think of how that could work, you know, and not just say, hey, everybody, walk outside, because if I discovered that data, I'd probably, yo, everybody, fucking, you know, <laughs> go swimming or in the creek or, you know, go hang out outside. But to, to be able to bring that into an urban environment. Yeah, like, like New York City. Yeah, totally. Where the whole thing's a big concrete grid. Yeah. Like, where do you find grass? I mean, Central Park is great, but not Can't everybody's go there every doing day. it. Right. Yeah. So how do you make it usable, available? So this guy, you have you have these sheet sets you sleep on at night. You've got these little things that you can rest your hand on by the computer. Nice. So all the EMF frequency that you're getting bombarded with. I want to you probably put it underneath your feet at the desk. Too. At the desk too. They they got these little pads. Brilliant. This is brilliant. Coming soon from Onnit Lab, somewhere or another. Totally. We're gonna we're gonna fucking make that happen. Yeah. That's that's a definite. We got we got to make that happen. Well, Dan, there's so much to talk about. We got about another 10 minutes here before we're going to wrap this up. Um, so I want to touch on a few of the other things. So just to finish off the physical part, we're in the last day today. Um, last night, we drank a bunch of olive oil <laughs> as the final thing. Um, and, and that was triggering the gallbladder to release the bile, which is what digests the, the fat. Is that is that an accurate? Yeah, it's a, it's a good description. Uh, it's a nice summary statement. You know, and and there's a it's a funny kind of thing... Because recently I was just trying to, 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 to find out, like, if there had ever been any studies of the benefits of liver gallbladder flushes. Mm -hmm. And I went on a, um, a PubMed search, which is the largest online data system of the studies that have been done in, in, across the world. Um, and there weren't any. There was, well, I, I take it back. There was one, but it was an abstract that I couldn't access because it's in a different language. Yeah. And so allopathic medicine really doesn't appreciate the benefit of doing liver gallbladder flushes. And some part of that is because, well, we got to this point without doing liver gallbladder flushes. Why do we have to do them now? I mean, like, we didn't do them well, some of us, years you ago. had a pretty funny story, which would be worth telling in a oh, few moments about funny. how uh, the ayahuasca <laughs> forced you to do that. What, oh, what happened for you? Because this is similar to what's happening to all of us here at the Grove, yeah. except just in a different way. So oftentimes when you go through a liver gallbladder flush is you release a lot of these what are called stones, gallstones. And the gallstones can be either uh, really hard calcified stones. And those are the ones that people have a hard time with, especially passing. That's very uncommon. And even if you had calcified gallstones going through this process, it's still doable and safe mm -hmm. because the gallstones soften with this phosphoric acid and the bile duct opens with this Epsom salt. So it's the perfect delivery system. We just had a, a, a gal who was about to, she called me from her, I was coming back from uh, the tree actually. She called me on my cell phone from her hospital bed. She said, they want to take my gallbladder out right now can you help me? And I was like, wow. Um, yes. Please don't get your gallbladder taken out. <laughs> you won't be able to put it back. Yeah. And they don't really appreciate the long-term ramifications. And yes, they can take your gallstones out along with your gallbladder and they're going to think that's okay. And they're not going to tell you like all the long-term ramifications, which is, oh, by the way, now you can't digest your fats for the rest of your life. <laughs> Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> right. So, D depending on the type of gallstones, the allopathic community say, well, 
that's unsafe to put somebody through a flush. It's not unsafe. You just have to do it the right way with the right supplements mm -hmm. in the right kind of sequence. So some gallstones are calcified. That's uncommon. Most of them are cholesterol, kind of fatty in nature. Mm -hmm. And they, they set up these big kind of fatty, hard, like hard fat, like, um, like rubber from a tire, mm -hmm. that kind of hard fat. Um, they set up these big globules in the gallbladder, and the gallbladder gets all congested and it can't do its job. And then you get somebody, after a big fatty meal, has this gallbladder attack. They think they're having a heart attack, but it's their gallbladder trying to push out this little bitty <laughs> morsel of bile to try and digest that fat. But it's trying to squeeze through all this other crap. So in another, it's either bile St gall stones or bile sludge. It's kind yeah, of the yeah, same yeah. thing. It's just a big mess. It's like a tar pit in there. So you take these supplements and it pushes all that out, flushes all that out. Well, and then sometimes when you have that experience of expelling all these stones, it feels like a, a machine gun is getting shot out of your ass. <laughs> Because you're 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 pooping like a machine gun. All these like what would be like peas. <laughs> it's like split pea soup coming out your butt. And the first time I had ever had that experience, I didn't even know what a gallbladder flush was. It was the first time I did my ayahuasca uh -huh. experience. It was it was the most amazing experience spiritually and physically. Because I had this experience while I'm high as a kite, not knowing what was happening. Had this experience of a machine gun being shot out of my ass. <laughs> And it was kind of alarming and kind of like your first colonic experience, very liberating because I felt so good afterwards. Yeah. And it wasn't only until years later I, I realized those were gallstones. And some of what the purgative medicines do, like these medicines like ayahuasca and some of the others, is they cause the body to flush its toxins, whether you purge from above or you purge from below. And I'd say the first... I've maybe done a hundred ceremonies or so. Maybe the first 40 ceremonies I did, I never purged from above. Mm -hmm. I only purged from below. And so I'm basically doing a lot of bowel cleansing, a lot yeah. of gallbladder flushes. It's very cleansing. And like you said, it can be depleting. So I don't recommend people really do it that frequently. Um, so I'm just saying, like, I, I've, I mean, I've had some experience with it, but I'm not saying that's the best approach to go. What I am saying is, they are powerful medicines in how much they will cleanse sure. body, mind, spirit, heart, and soul. And so you're on the last day. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I get to experience a little bit of that. I'm waiting. I have one more colonic coming up. That's my reward for finishing this oh, podcast nice. is, to, is to go get one more, uh, one more little reaming of the intestinal flush. Yeah. flush. That's when yeah. you really see a lot of them. I bet. So, but already I've seen, you see these little things kind of floating in the toilet and yeah. uh, it's like, what the hell is that? Go. Yeah. Good. Good riddance. Those are your Good cholesterol riddance. stones because the yeah. cholesterol, the fat will float. The calcium stones, and that's what some people like when you do research on liver gallbladder flushes and some people say, oh, that's a bunch of crap. I mean, not literally. <laughs> they don't mean it literally. They think it's a bunch of BS. They don't, they don't believe in it because mm -hmm. stones are supposed to sink. Yes, that's if they're calcified stones, but that's not most of what most people, of people have. Most people just have a little bit of extra cholesterol. Yeah. Well, the result is, you know, on the physical side, I feel awesome. Um, you know, we're going to have to not even get into the depths of the kind of uh, Yeah, we didn't even talk about your ceremonies know, and all of those experiences. Uh, Dan is... All the treatments. Beyond being a doctor and, and everything that he's described, he also led a, 
a surprisingly powerful cacao ceremony. And if you don't know, chocolate just isn't delicious. Um, there's a, you know, medicinal tradition, uh, spiritual tradition around using cacao as a sacrament, as a sort of entheogen. Um, and so we were able to do that. It was a, a very specific cacao, rich in uh, what were the what were the constituents that they're really targeting for entheogenic, uh, ritualistic cacao? Yeah, the anandamides, anandamides, uh, theobromine, mm-hmm. and phenylethylalanine (PEA). Mm-hmm. And these are some of the neurotransmitter and hormonal affecting qualities that come out in the cacao that have people experience that really strong heart opening and an altered state of consciousness too. Not that's like some of the antiangins we've been talking about, but that is more um, in a subtle way expanding the consciousness while the heart's really expanding itself. So we get to, especially as really strong men, it, it really helps to have those times when we're heart, when our heart is open. Sure. So that we know how to use this power in a good way. Yeah. Yeah, that's the harmonizing effect of, of, of being right now on the planet. There's... There's been this masculine dominant culture on the planet, and now it's being balanced with this feminine like renaissance. And that includes um, the feminine side of all of ourselves. And to be able to say, yeah, I have this feminine side of myself that I'm thankfully getting to know better. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And- Makes sense. So for me, and you know, I, I can talk about this more and I'll probably write some blogs about the individual effects of it, but it was. It was pretty interesting. It's subtle. It's not like an ayahuasca experience, you know. It's not going to be overpowering. You're not going to... Uh, but just the way that my perception and feeling about energy in my own body and almost visual perception of it, really that kind of third eye pineal activation I could feel in a, in a very kind of warm sense in, uh, in my heart, in that kind of emotional center of my being, um, really quite quite enjoyable and quite uh, mm-hmm. quite subtly powerful to do it and uh, so you know there's medicines and many things that are around us that we that we fail to to give credit for but that was uh, certainly a powerful one and then on uh, on the other side which I'll certainly have to break out at least into its own podcast or blog was my shamanic breathing ceremony which I did which was wow, wow yeah you know really intense um, you know so so really at that point you're hyper oxygenating your blood which is somehow altering your cognitive filter a little bit. Is that what's going on? It definitely does that. Huxleyan kind of paradigm. Yeah. And this, this, this work is based a large, there's a lot of research around it too from Stanislav Grof and the holotropic breathwork movement that came out around the same times that LSD did. And they were kind of parallel psychedelic experiences. One that you took a substance for and one you could access consciously just through breathing and really dynamic breathing. And so when you're in this hyper-oxygenated state, oxygen is essentially life force energy. And so these stuck, from a shamanic standpoint, mm-hmm. these stuck parts of our, of our energy body, of our psyche, get flooded with this prana, this high life force energy that starts just busting down these doors that we've shut. And in order to access that, you really need to push the breath. And in pushing the breath, for me, the first 15 minutes, I was in full paralysis. I mean, I was curled up, my hands were wretched, my mouth was stuck. 
I couldn't even say anything. There was people around me that were yelling and doing, I was like, I was like, what is going on? I can't even move my mouth. You know, we were like, and then after that, tetany. yeah, full, full tetany, just, yeah. just couldn't even budge. And my legs were locked up and I was like, this is going to be hell. This is really, <laughs> I got another hour. This is really going to be hell. Uh, but then, then really something clicked, you know, a few triggers from the shaman holding the space there. Um, and uh, I was really put into a really clear, lucid, visionary state that was that, really powerful. That was similar to your ayahuasca trip. Very similar. Very similar. Less distraction, actually, from visions and colors and the chrysanthemum and, you know, more just straight to the point. Like, mm. it, it was different in that, you know. Usually you kind of have to filter through the stuff, the part of your journey that is cool, but it's not really yeah, that memorable. IATV. Yeah, exactly. Right. IATV. And, uh, but this was just, you know, straight exactly what I needed right. to see. And that so you was... had this psychedelic experience, this conscious opening experience while still being consciously engaged, mm -hmm. not taking anything outside of your own ability to hyper oxygenate, not requiring any outside influence to be able to access those states. Yeah. And it's really powerful to be able to recognize that we have so many different modalities and tools and much of which is at our immediate disposal. Yeah. We don't necessarily have to go down to the jungle, you know, a few thousand miles away. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or look, you know, I mean, obviously I'm a proponent of the, the psychedelic medicine and I always recommend doing it with a shaman or a sitter in the set and setting that's proper. But a lot of us, the fact of the matter is it's illegal, you know, and that's a risk that we have to be, you know, either willing to take and I, I can't, conscientiously recommend people to do illegal things just because of the risk. What if I recommend it and you get busted or, you know, something, you know, you're in the wrong set and setting, you know, it's a lot of risk, but this is something that, you know, still you want the right, you want a sitter, you want a setting, you want a guide through, because you are going to some kind of really opening states and it's nice to have that with the right music and not having to fuss about anything and someone to tell you when the oxygen is what is happening when the oxygen freezes up your, your body like that? Why is, why is well, that happening? I think there are a couple of things that happen physiologically through that um, hyper-oxygenated state. You have different chemical reactions, and um, I, I suspect on a cellular level, you're alternating the sodium-magnesium pump channel, I mean, the sodium chloride channel pump. Um, you're probably getting the, the, the muscles into some stuck position through mm -hmm. friction across um, short and long-acting fibers. I, I don't really know physiologically if studies have been done in hyper-oxygenated states to know why that happens. Mm -hmm. Classically, tetany is when you have tetanus, mm -hmm. uh, when you're infected by the, 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 the pathogen that causes um, tetanus to happen. And that's from an acetylcholine um, let me let me make sure I remember my microbiology. This is going all the way back to med school. Go now. deep. <laughs> um, when the acetylcholine receptors are paralyzed, uh -huh. and the postsynaptic junction paralyzes, so that you can't depolarize the muscular membrane, and it totally freezes up yeah. until you give it the antidote. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that you're it getting... It just feels like it. <laughs> it, it well, it, it's, it's classically what happens because you are frozen up. Your muscles are frozen up. Yeah. But 
and every time that happens, eventually, even if you keep breathing, you come through it. Yeah, and I so you're just did. pushing through a door. Yeah, you're, you're pushing through some kind of physiologic as well as spiritually stuck place that you weren't able to previously access. And when you push through that door, the body does relax. Totally. And when you have somebody who can be, who can ride you in a good way, like the shaman's riding, like keep breathing, keep yeah, going, yeah, yeah. keep pushing. When you have somebody who can ride, you can stay with it. If you're doing that by yourself and your body's freezing up and you're like, shit, I'm going to get paralyzed, <laughs> you may not want to stay with it, yeah, right? Because totally. you don't know what's going to happen. Totally. So kudos to you for staying with it. And right. then seeing what happens on the other side. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like a runner's high. All of a sudden, you break through this barrier. Now you're just like floating. Yeah. Like, holy crap, what just happened? You access another portal. Yeah, it's, it's it phenomenal was, what we can do. It was do. powerful medicine, you yeah. know, no doubt. Really, one of the top most profound experiences. If my maybe top three, I haven't really classified them like that. Definitely top five. You know, I think the you know ayahuasca number one, uh, iboga, the only time I did it, and this each had will have lasting profound impacts that are pretty significant. So, a lot of ways to find the medicine for the soul and the spirit and the body. Um, so I think Dan, I think we're going to finish up here. And, uh, and as, as always now, this, uh, this podcast is sponsored by on it labs on it.com O N N I T.com. Dan, one of the formulas you were mentioning that you like just taking a cursory grant glance was the, uh, the shroom tech sport formula. Totally. Um, and lot- your alpha brain, both of those right on, right on. Yeah. We, uh, we always, uh, we, we love those as well. Um, you know, those are some of our biggest sellers and some of the most impactful Mm. Uh, supplements, but you were mentioning something about the Shroom Tech Sport that often gets overlooked, and that was some of the adaptogens we had in there, the, totally. the rhodiola and the Siberian yeah. ginseng, and uh, you're a big proponent of those, right? Yeah, the adaptogens, you know, we're just getting more and more scientifically validated research to show how beneficial those are, how amazing those are. And, you know, we, we've had case studies, at least from our literature in the West, we've had case studies that they were really powerful, like um, I think it was in the, it was in 1980 that um, the Russian gymnasts were just like dismantling everybody mm-hmm. and coming up clean on their steroid tests yep. and all of that kind of stuff. And what they were, it, what it came out that they were taking is rhodiola. It's just like the Chinese, levels. just like the Chinese runners were taking the, the cordyceps when they, right. when they exactly. made that big Right. Surge. So you got something with both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So the adaptogens, they help our bodies adapt to stress. They give us the ability to recover quicker, to take more on, to have that sense of like resilience, that, that warriorship that sees a challenge and says, okay, I can meet that challenge. Not necessarily a cocky attitude, like bring it on, but like, no, I have the inner fortitude, the calm, discerning, clarity of action to be able to take whatever life's gonna give me. It's that like, it's that, it's that confidence that you can just tell in someone when they walk in the door and don't have to say anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We like that. <laughs> we like that. Well, Dan, this has been a real pleasure. Warrior, poet, doctor, shaman. And if you didn't rid the bats out of your hut, you could definitely walk out and say, I am Batman. (laughs) I would give you you that credit. It's been a real pleasure, Dan. We're going to have to do this again. Awesome. Look forward to it. All right. Take care, everybody. Yeah.